two passages. First, in James chapter 4. Why don't you turn in James chapter 4. Our primary text will be in Genesis 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Genesis, James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Genesis chapter 4. Verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruits of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to control you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. and Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, almighty God, for this day. We pray, Lord, that you would, uh, Father God, visit us today. Visit us uh, with your spirit. I pray that uh, we would find instruction for our souls in this passage today. We ask, dear Lord, that you'd open our eyes and our heart to behold wondrous things from thy law. And that, Father, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. O Lord, we ask, O Lord, for humble hearts that we would not be proud and arrogant like Cain, and that we wouldn't follow in his way, but rather, Lord, that we would walk in humility and, 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 and meekness with you, our God, and that, uh, and that we would follow in the path of Abel. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this word, and we ask, dear God, that you'd also bless my mind and my lips and my heart, 
that as I speak, I would speak forth your very words and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' precious name with thanksgiving, we pray, amen, amen. Um, today's sermon um, is, is meant for us to really think about what it means, what it means to be a Christian in the world today. There is a lot of conflict in the world, a lot of conflict. We are seeing right now, although it's not in the news much, there is still a war raging in the Ukraine, and people are dying every day. There's blood being spilled day after day after day in the Ukraine. Russia seems to be intensifying its forces. There has been conflict all throughout the world in the last hundred years, more so than ever before. We've seen two world wars and many other conflicts result as from that. In the early 21st century, we saw tremendous conflict between radical Islam and the Western world. And that has not gone away. It still exists in most of the Middle East. We just don't hear about it no more. There's conflict raging throughout the world as Christians are constantly being persecuted, put to death, and imprisoned for the sake of their witness for Christ. There's conflict here in America, and that conflict seems to be intensifying as the years go on. The country is becoming more and more polarized, pulling apart at the seams. We have a blue America or a red America, and it's very hard to find a middle ground. Last night I was reading that the Department of Homeland Security has issued a warning that they are expecting extreme, violent extremism in the next couple of weeks due to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and particularly churches are targets. So we could be a target in the next few weeks, and may God protect us. And all this answers the question, why? Why is there so much conflict in the world? Can there ever be peace? Well, the truth is there's been conflict in the world since day one. Here we are in Genesis chapter 4, and we get a picture and portrait of the first family that was created, Adam and Eve, and their children. And right from the very beginning, we see that conflict arises. And from the day that Cain struck his brother Abel and killed him, the human race has been at war ever since. There will always be conflict. There will always be war. James tells us why is there conflict and war? Because you want and you don't have. We're driven by our passions. We have strong views and opinions. We feel that we're being treated unfairly. We look at others and we say, well, how come they are being shown favor and we're not? And we're jealous of people and envious of those. And it brings conflict and war and rage. I'm sorry to tell you this, but until the Lord returns, there will be wars and rumors of war. And there will be blood spilled. And people will die. And we will continue like this until Christ returns. There will not be peace on the earth until the Messiah comes, the Prince of Peace. And Satan is crushed under his feet. And the kingdom of God rules over men. So until that time, there will always be conflict. There will always be war. 
There will always be bloodshed. And anyone who thinks that they could find some peaceful solution to humanity in the here and now lives in a dream world. It's fantasy. There's no utopia on this side of heaven. But what is the source of it all? What is at the core of it all? And that's what I want to kind of unpack today in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we have one of the saddest tragedies in the book of Genesis. It's actually tragedy upon tragedy. Adam and Eve were God's creation, the first man and first woman, the first married couple. And they blew it tremendously. We already know the whole narrative of Genesis 1 through 3. They sinned, they violated God's commandments. They were banished from the Garden of Eden, banished from God's presence, and were now had to work the soil and, and live in this world. They still had a, an approach to God. They could worship God from outside of Eden and bring uh, before the altar of Eden sacrifices to worship God. But now they could no longer walk with God in the cool of the day, but they needed to come to God with sacrifices, blood sacrifices in particular, as God atoned for their sins by covering them with the skins of the animals that he killed himself to set an example for them. And it was to point to the coming Messiah, to the seed in whom would shed his blood so that sins could be forgiven and man could be reconciled with God and sin could be atoned and covered for. After suffering that tragedy of being banished and dealing with the consequences of original sin, they had two children. It says in verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve. That, that knowledge there is carnal knowledge. It, it, it suggests that they were intimate. They had intercourse and as a result, they conceived. She conceived and bore two sons, Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man with the help of of the Lord. It implies that Eve had hope that he might have been the promised seed. Perhaps he was the one, the one who would turn it all around, the one who would crush the serpent's head. And I'm sure when he was born, he was a cute baby boy and she held him in his arms and loved him and he smiled and he giggled and he was a happy little baby. She didn't know that one day he would turn out to be a monster. All monsters were little babies at one time. Adolf Hitler was a little baby one time. And he was cute. And he laughed. And he giggled. The biggest monster is sin and what it does to us, isn't it? And then she had another child and they named him Abel. And, and, and here uh, she named him Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. They both chose uh, respectable vocations. One was a shepherd and one was a farmer. And these were the two vocations that pretty much uh, dominated the ancient world. But what we're going to see is that of these two sons that were born, there was going to be great disappointment. And that's part of life, isn't it? Part of life is you bring children into this world and your children don't always turn out the way you want. You could teach them all the good you want. You could raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You construct them in the ways of God. Some are going to go the right way and some are going to go the wrong way. And there's absolutely nothing you could do about it. There's only so much we could control. And there is a lot we can control. 
God wants us to, to teach our kids the Word of God, and He wants us to be good examples. But after that, we understand that everything rests in the hands of God. And our children will grow up to be adults one day, and they'll make their own decisions, and they'll have to live with those decisions. And on the flip side of that, it's a reminder also, as we see this sibling rivalry developing within between Cain and Abel, it's a sibling rivalry, and it's a, it's a metaphor for the sibling rivalry we see among all siblings. But ultimately, it talks about the human race here. We're seeing, there's a big theological overtone here. This isn't just about brothers and sisters who fight, or, or brothers and brothers who fight, or sisters and sisters who fight. This is about, this is about conflict, a, a divide in the human race, so to speak. It, it's the greater conflict, And the conflict is much deeper than we could imagine. And so here we have these uh, two boys growing up in a family that had experienced tragedy. And they, I'm sure they warned their kids what the right thing to do was. But things went wrong very quickly. And so let's look at our first point today. Our first point is, as we look at Cain is that his issue, his primary issue was not with Abel. His issue was with God. His issue was with God. All right? The first thing we need to learn about Cain is that his, his problem, his issue was not with his brother Cain, Abel. It was with God. It says here in verse and again she bore his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground and in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord this is verse 3 I'm sorry an offering of the first fruit of the ground and Abel also also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay. So there's, there, we want to see that his issue was primarily with God. And his issue was primarily with God in the sense that he did not have the right approach to worship. Cain thought he was honoring God by what he was doing, but he was not doing what was expected of him. Why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's not? Right Here's the core of the issue. God is seen as the father here of two children. One son brings an offering. God says, well done. He says to the other son, you did a bad job. Do better. Cain is enraged. He's like, well, I'm giving you what I think is best. God says, no, it's not. Correct yourself. Do the right thing and you'll be expected. Cain says, no, I'm not going to do it. That's essentially what's going on here. They were expected to worship God and, and, and representing these two vocations, they were both to bring the best of their, 
of what they had to God. That was what's expected. God expects our very best. That's worship. That's what sacrifice is. The idea of sacrifice and tribute is to give God not the second best, not the third best, not the scraps, but our first fruits, the firstborn, everything that is the cream of the crop off the top. The offering referred to here is the tribute offering. It's the mina. In Hebrew, the word mina means an offering that demonstrated recognition of God's sovereign rule and benevolence towards his creation. So what was wrong with Cain's offering? What, What is the issue here? Because looking at this, you might say, wow, something seems unfair why, why did God treat Cain this way? It almost as if God provoked Cain to this point. Well, there's two ways we need to look at it. First of all, there are theological overtones. The traditional understanding to this is that Cain's offering was rejected because it wasn't an animal sacrifice. Going back to the garden, in order to approach God, there needed to be a blood sacrifice. There is no atoning for sin without the, without the offering of blood. There needs to be blood sacrifice. And and that was kind of established right there from the beginning in the garden. Like I said, when God slaughtered the animals and covered their nakedness and their shame with the animal skins, it points to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so theologically speaking, there's an undertone here that he chose to um, offer the first fruits of the ground rather than an offering of blood sacrifice. And while I think there is a a good lesson there, I think it goes a little deeper. I think there's, it it, it speaks to the heart of Cain. In the original Hebrew, it says that Cain merely brought some of the fruit of the ground where Abel offered his firstborn. And I think at the core of it, it has to do with that Cain did not worship God in faith. His sacrifice was offered in ritual. It was offered with a sense of, okay, here, here's what you want. But there was a sense of love and adoration and worship to God. It wasn't done in faith. And I know this because Hebrews 11.4 tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. Abel worshiped God with faith. He presented an acceptable sacrifice because in his sacrifice, he wasn't offering to God anything that that he was saying, okay, God, here's what I'm doing for you. Now you owe me. It was an offering to God, recognizing God's sovereignty and grace. And at the same time, he was trusting in God, trusting in God's forgiveness, trusting in God's mercy and worshiping him from a heart of love and and trust. Cain's attitude was the opposite. Cain didn't love God. Cain saw God as a tyrant. He probably, deep in his heart, it wasn't done from faith. It was done from, I must do this. Right? Think about what the New Testament teaches us. God loves a cheerful giver. Right? No one should give under compulsion or I have to do it. You want to give. God detests an offering that's done from a heart or a spirit as if God is some tyrant who's demanding tribute from me. 
I have to go to church. I have to pray. I have to read my Bible. Oh. And I think that's the subtle implication here is you see a man who didn't have faith in God. He didn't believe. He just inherited his parents' religion like so many people in the world, right? They inherit their parents' religion, but they're not born again. They have no faith in God. They just do what they have to do for a season to please their parents until the time comes when they throw off the shackles of religion and live their life as they please. What we're seeing here is really the birth of the prodigal son, eh? Give me my reward, let me go my way. He had a distorted view of God. That was the problem. And because he had a wrong view of God, he had a wrong view of worship. This affected how he approached God and it affected how he worshiped God and therefore his offering wasn't accepted. Remember something, the Bible tells us that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are such the worshipers that God seeks, Jesus tells the woman in Samaria. Pretentious religion doesn't impress God. He hates it, in fact. If you look back to Isaiah for a moment, turn me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 1, rather. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And, and, and in this opening salvo here in, the, in Isaiah's prophecy, God takes issue with the utter phoniness of the worship of Israel, and he's sickened by it. Look what it says here in verse 12. Well, I'm going to start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. That's a nice way to describe your people. Rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, Who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. You have become a burden to me. And I'm weary of bearing, I'm weary of bearing them. They thought they were doing God a favor. They thought they were okay. They were very religious people. This was the case of Cain. But notice the grace of God. So Cain's issue is not with Abel as much as it's with God. And so God intervenes in verse 6 and 7. And although he rejected Cain's offering, God shows grace. He gives him a second chance. He tells him, listen, if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? What an offer of grace. It's very simple. Correct yourself. Repent. Come to me with the right sacrifice. Come to me with the right heart. 
Will I not gladly embrace you? What he's saying is come to me in repentance and faith and I will show favor upon you. And there's a warning with that. He said sin, sin's desire for you. It's like a lion crouching at the door. I, I, I love the personification of sin there. It's a reminder for all of us, sin crouches at your door day and night like a wild beast. At night, sometimes we can hear the coyotes howling. It, 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 it sends send, send a chill up your spine. They're, they're so nasty. Claudia is afraid to go out at night with the dog. She says the coyotes are out there. Rightfully so, right? They could tear you apart. How much more? How much more sin wants to tear us apart? Its desire is for you. That word teshukwa is the same word in Hebrew that was used when God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. In other words, it means the desire to conquer, the desire to rule over you. Sin wants you, wants to tear you up. You must rule over it, Cain. And so here's Cain. He's at this crossroads. I can put my sinful impulses at bay and conquer them and rule over my flesh and do the right thing or go, eh, heck with that. I'm going to do what I want. And so we know what Cain did. If he had listened to the Lord, he would have found favor, but instead he, he chose disaster. Cain had a chance, but he wouldn't have it. He refused to listen to God's word. He refused to repent. Instead, he hardened his heart, became more angry at God because his heart was filled with pride. You will not tell me what to do, God. I'll do it my way. That's essentially what Cain said. This is sad because in many ways it reminds us that we're all in this position at some point or another. We're all going to find ourselves corrected by God, corrected through the ministry of the word, corrected by our husbands or our wives, corrected by maybe even our children, corrected by our parents, corrected by a peer in the church. God will use means. God doesn't speak to us directly like he did to Cain and Abel. God speaks to us through his word and through his servants. And when God corrects us and says, here's the right way, are we going to humble ourselves and listen? Are we going to harden our hearts and say, I'll do what I want. How dare you tell me what to do? Go worry about yourself. But you see, Cain is not just a believer. He's not a believer. Cain is the prototype here, he is the first child, the firstborn of the race of unbelievers, the children of disobedience, as Ephesians 2 tells us. He is the first child of disobedience. He is the father of the children of disobedience. You see, Cain is of the seed of the serpent. Abel is of the seed of the woman. They're two different seeds. And what Cain really represents is the world in its hostility to God and to his word. 
This is why the world, when you try to correct them and say, listen, this is what God's word says, you're wrong, they hate you. This is immoral, they hate you. It's not you, they hate God. At the core of it is, God, we will not listen to you. We will not have you tell us what to do. And so what does King do? He does what unbelievers do. They take it out on God's people. And that's where we read the first murder. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel, verse 8. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed them. And the Lord said to Cain, well, let me stop there. He killed his brother. It says that they spoke in the field. I would have loved to have been a fly on the tree there, wouldn't you? I want to say fly on the wall, but it was in the field, so. What was that conversation? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I believe, if you were to ask me, what, if I were to theorize what the conversation was like, because Jesus said that Cain, that Abel was a prophet, and a prophet speaks forth the word of God, I believe that what they were discussing was how to worship God and how to serve him. And I believe that Abel was correcting his brother Cain, and he went into such a rage. How dare you? you? And he killed him. And by the way, he didn't need an AR-15 to do it. He just needed a rock. Murder is in the heart of man that is filled with hatred and sin and evil and disgust. And so they went for this walk and he wound up dead. Cain was bloodthirsty. Why did he murder his brother? Clearly, for one reason, as I said, he represented and spoke to him the word of God. But, but the Bible tells us other reasons. First of all, he had anger. His anger was first directed at God, and then he projected his anger towards his brother because his brother represented God. Right? So the unbeliever who hates Christians, ultimately, and Jesus tells us, John 15, they hated me and they hated my father because they hate me and they hate my father, they're going to hate you. And so that anger is really against God, but then it filters towards others. And this is a warning for us. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, right? 21 and 22, that don't be angry. Why? Because anger leads to murder. If you, if you hate your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. Scripture tells us don't let the sun go down on your anger. When you feed anger and resentment and it festers in you, you just want to... You could fantasize about putting your hands around someone's throat and choking them. Have you ever done that? You're a liar if you said you never have. Someone in your life has ticked you off enough to make you feel that way at one point or another. And that's sin. And if you feed anger enough, eventually you'll wind up killing someone. You might control it for some, but one day you can go off into a blind range and do something. You, what did I do? You see that sometimes on the news. Someone just goes on to it, flies off to rage. They kill everyone. Well, what happened? That anger was seething. That hatred was seething and festering and smoldering and just, boom, one little match to the powder keg and it goes off. 
Be not angry. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, get your anger in check. Anger is poison to the Christian soul. Anger will destroy you. Anger will ruin your relationships with everyone around you. It'll turn you into a monster. It'll turn you into Cain. Don't go in the way of Cain. He also hated his brother because his deeds were more righteous than his. That's the ultimate reason. 1 John 3.12 says says that uh, Cain killed his brother evil because he was of the evil one and his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His brothers were more righteous than his. At the end of the day, it was jealousy. He couldn't stand the fact that his brother was a do-gooder. Always doing better than me. Always doing good. It was jealousy that was motivating him because he couldn't measure up. It's not that he couldn't measure up. He wouldn't measure up. There's a difference. God gave him a chance. He was fair. Do the right thing. No, I won't do it. And see, that's how sin twists you. Sin twists you to look at the person who does the right thing instead of looking at the person who's good and saying, well, let me try to be good. You become angry with the person who does good and hate them because you want to continue in your sin and darkness. Those in darkness hate the light and they run from the light because darkness exposes. Darkness is exposed by light. This was the same for Christ, right? When his brothers told him, why don't you go to Jerusalem and show yourself to the world? Let everybody know that you're Messiah. What did Jesus say in John 7, 7? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because they testify that its works are evil. When you live a righteous life, you shine light on the darkness of others. You testify that its works are evil. The more you live righteous and the more you preach righteousness, the more people will hate you. That's not me saying it. It's God's word saying it. But look, we had two people run out the door today. They can't stand the word of righteousness. It flew them right out the door. And I'm calling it out here because I saw it and it was so obnoxious and so disruptive. Okay, people can't bear the word of God. Mark Dever said back in 2011, I'll never forget when I went to the Nine Marks Conference, he says if people walk out the door when you're preaching, it means you're doing the right thing. I comfort myself in that. Who knows what their motive was anyway, if there's people looking to, to spot, scope out churches to see where they could target. And so finally now, we see the God, Cain's anger towards God and Cain's anger now towards his brother resulted a murder. Let's look at the fallout, the fallout of that. God, God comes into the picture and speaks to Cain. He says, where is Abel, your brother? This is sort of like a, this sort of echoes back to, to Eden, right? Adam, Adam, where are you? Cain, where's your brother? And the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? Just like Adam was in denial and kind of ob- obfuscated the whole thing, right? Here we see sin at its nature and its core. Uh, you know, what does he say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, first thing, he's a liar, right? He's lying. He knows exactly what happened to his brother. I just think about that, to lie to God. You know, the sinner, 
When someone is deep in sin, they lie to everyone. They lie to God. They lie to others. They lie to themselves. But you, the, the, the biggest stupidity here is you cannot fool God. You can't lie to God. Sin makes you stupid. You know that, right? Sin makes you dumb. When you harden your heart, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.18, it darkens the mind. When the mind gets dark, you don't think clearly. You ever notice that when people are, when people, really wicked people, really sinful people, you try to talk to them and they're irrational? You can't have a conversation with them? It's all emotions? That's what sin does. It clouds the mind. You can't reason. You, 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 you believe lies and you tell lies and you go, you go from being deceived to deceiving others. It's, 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 it's darkness. But what really, what really is awful is when he said, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, I'm responsible for my brother? That's not my problem. You see, Cain never loved his brother. Cain didn't care about his brother. He didn't care about his mother. He didn't care about his father. He only cared about himself. He was a, his sin had been warped into selfishness of the of the highest degree. He was a self-serving man and he'd kill anyone who got in his way. How many people do you see like that in the world today? Countless. People will kill when, they get, when you get in their way or deny them what they want. Self is at the core of the sin nature. And it's what drives it's what drives the seed of the serpent. It's what drives the human race apart from God. And so God responds to him. Verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which you opened its mouth to receive you and your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And so God brings a judgment on Cain. He brings a judgment on Cain. He, he, is, he is bound to wander the earth and be a fugitive. No longer will the earth yield its good. He says to me, you can lie to me, Cain, but your brother's blood cries out. Your brother's blood cries out. The blood of those who are slaughtered, the blood of those who are killed, bear witness against their murderers. The blood of Christ, when it was spilled on Calvary, bore witness. And the blood of Christ speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The same way, the blood of millions of babies that have been spilled in this country and in the world cry out. Justice has yet to be served. He was not sorry for his sins. Rather, he got upset. Look what it says in verse 12. Or verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I could bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who find him should attack him. 
Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Notice the heart of Cain. The worst thing that happened here is that he was alienated from God. He was hidden from the face of God. He was driven from the presence of God. That's the consequence of sin. Sin separates us from God. It alienates us from God. It drives us from his face and good presence. That wasn't what upset Cain. What upset Cain was people are going to try to hunt me. I'm a fugitive. I, got, I, I can't farm anymore. Cain could only think again about himself in the here and now. Poor me. Poor me. I'm a victim. Again, this is the heartbeat of unbelievers. The heartbeat of unbelievers is, I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm sorry because of the consequences it brought upon me. You're too harsh on me. Notice the grace of God that he actually showed mercy towards Cain. That's the amazing grace of God. Don't ever think that God is mean and tyrannical. God, if the picture here shows a gracious, merciful God who does not deal with us according to our sins. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. But God is also no fool. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, a man reaps. And if you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Those things cannot be changed. What was this mark? <laughs> you can't believe all the different explanations out there. Some are really crazy. But I like one that was put out there. Cain bore the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is the mark of sinful man apart from God who worships the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. It's the mark that every unbeliever bears who is alienated from God and separated from God. You see, Cain would be the first, but he would be many more to come who would come in his line, in the line of Cain, the line of the serpent, who would follow in his footsteps, who would hate God and hate his people and be, and be at enmity and be at war. And this is the source of all conflict in the world. It was the beginning of a war, a religious war that would go on forever. It would find its culmination in the cross and the Pharisees there who crucified Jesus were the descendants, the spiritual descendants of Cain. Just as Cain killed Abel out of his jealousy, it was the Pharisees in their rage and hatred for Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, who murdered him. But Christ bore our sins and took our place so that people like Cain can see their need for a Messiah, for a Savior, for the coming seed and put their trust in him and find salvation. There's hope. There's hope because we all at one time were the seed of Cain. There's hope for everyone. And as long as you're alive and you're breathing, and no matter how bad you are, no matter how bad someone else is that you know, there's always hope for salvation. But just remember this, my brothers and sisters. Don't be surprised at all the conflict in the world. There's always going to be conflict. 
because there's always going to be children of Cain in this world. Secondly, secondly, the warning is for us that we don't walk in the way of Cain. It's a warning to us. It's a warning to us to serve God with the right heart, to serve God in faith, to serve God in spirit and truth. Cain was a religious man. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he was way off. It looked, when you read Genesis 4, you say, well, what's wrong? He brought his, his, his first fruits to the ground to the Lord? Well, what's so bad about that? His heart was wrong. You could do all the right things externally, but inwardly be wretched. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, it says in the book of Proverbs. We need to heed the Lord. We need to be broken. You know what the sacrifices that God accepts? A contrite and broken heart. That's what God accepts. That's what pleases God. A contrite and broken heart. Psalm 51, David wrote at the end of his, his travail when he understood how sinful he was when he was a murderer. He had... Uriah, the Hittite, murdered so he could continue in his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And it took a year for him to come to his senses. A year to realize he was a wretched, disgusting sinner. And it shows that if there's hope for David, there's hope for the worst of us. Psalm 51. David writes one of the most beautiful psalms of repentance and I read with me in Psalm 51, verse 7. This is the heart of a man broken before God. If you're like Cain and you've been guilty of not worshiping God in faith, look at David. Because David worshiped God in hypocrisy for at least a year. Imagine going to the temple and offering sacrifices to God with the blood of your eye on his hands and not repenting of it. Purge me with hyssop, verse 7, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's the prayer of a person who's broken. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Skip down to verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Oh, God, have mercy on us. My brothers and sisters, I pray that today, if any one of us have gone astray, if any one of us have been in any way not walking in the way of Abel, walking in the way of Cain, may it be a day of repentance, a day of refreshing, a day of renewal.
Repent. Come to God. Humble yourself and He will, as the Lord said to Cain, will He not accept you if you do what's right? But if you continue to go your path, you will succumb to the wild beast of sin in you. And when it conquers you, you will be its slave forever. And then finally, the days of range will indeed be ahead. The world will blame you and me for the th- what they feel that they've been deprived of. The world will hate you because you speak forth the truth. The world will hate you when you do what's right. That's the way of God. The real conflict is the spiritual conflict. But praise be to Lord that soon Satan will be under our feet. You know, in Romans 16, when it says Satan will soon be under your feet, you know what that means? In the ancient world, when you conquered your enemy, you would put your foot on the neck of, your, of the person that you conquered. You would choke them with your foot. You would dig your foot into their, their neck and choke them as a sign that you conquered them. Satan will soon be under our feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that speak to us, these timeless truths. And yet, in this sibling rivalry, it, it, it encompasses, O oh Lord, this great division in the human race. It reminds us why there's conflict in this world. But ultimately, Lord, it reminds us that we're all at war with you. We're all your enemies until we repent and come before you, Lord Jesus, and surrender our lives to you. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you or hasn't surrendered to you, God, please move upon their hearts and break their hearts, break their spirits. I pray that no person will walk out of here proud and arrogant with their heart lifted up like Cain, but that we leave here broken and humbled like David. Hear our prayers, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.